Hear the word of the Lord from, from Genesis 25. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out all red, his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me have some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we do ask now for your blessing upon us as we seek to understand this marvelous word that you have given to us again. Open our hearts and our eyes, we pray in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated, and if you would, grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis 25. Genesis 25. I well remember, thanks, I well remember uh, whining, complaining to my parents, oh, that's not fair. Uh, I was, I suspect as I look back on it now, I sit and I think I was a real whiner. I whined a lot about, oh, it's not fair and this isn't what I want and why is it happening like this. For the life of me, I can't remember how my parents handled it, but I don't think they handled it well. Uh, only because I just keep remember whining. Uh, they treated me unfairly or things happened unfair to me and I whined about it and that was about the extent of my memory with this. So that when I became a parent, I was somewhat committed not to let that kind of thing go on. My guess is that my parents, I don't remember this, but my guess is that my parents went out of their way to try to show me how they were not being unfair to me. That's my guess is the natural reaction. And I was kind of committed not to do that with my own kids. So when my kids whined and said, oh, this isn't fair and you're not treating us fair, I took a different track. And and Kel and I kind of said, you know what? Life's not fair, and you're just going to have to learn to live with it. And for a young kid, I remember that really shocking our kids a little bit, but that's kind of reality. Now, most of you know that lesson and have learned that lesson. That's part of maturity, growing up and learning that, hey, life isn't always fair, and we've just got to somehow deal 
with that. Life's not fair. But I worry sometimes that we overlearn that lesson or that my kids might have overlearned that lesson or that I might overlearn that lesson and that the end result of every unfairness in my mind is the recognition that, oh, well, life is just not fair. And I become complacent, fatalistic, resigned to the fact that life is just not fair. And I'm not sure that that's the lesson that God would always have us learn in those situations. That's certainly not the case, I think, in this text when we come to the experience that Rebecca has. Now, if you were here last week, or if you go back and you read chapter 24 of Genesis, you will know that Rebecca uh, has married now Isaac. Uh, Isaac and Rebecca have come together, and it's a marvelous situation, circumstance, and you cannot doubt from reading Genesis 24 that God has brought Isaac and Rebekah together. And, and there's a very clear expression, picture of romantic love. These two of them are, are attached to each other. They're, there's an intimacy in their relationship in the midst of this. And I can just imagine, it's not hard to picture that somewhere along the lines, it would have happened you know, fairly soon, I think, perhaps this could even be something that the servant, if you remember the story, a servant goes 400 miles away to get Rebecca, and perhaps along the way the servant told Rebecca some of the things about the family lore, but it, it's hard to imagine that, that somewhere in the conversation, you know, Isaac and Rebecca are out for their first romantic dinner or something like this, and they're sitting over candlelight talking, and Isaac says, hey, I have to tell you a little bit about my family. That, uh, believe it or not, it's hard to imagine, but it's true, God spoke to my father. Not just did God speak to my father, but God spoke and made these tremendous promises to my father. Now, this goes way back in the history of, uh, of the, the world here. You know how brokenness is in this world. You know how sin is in this world. And you know that God has promised that he's going to do something about it. Okay, we all know that. And we're waiting eagerly for what God is going to do about this. And Rebecca, i got to tell you, that God promised my father that it's through his offspring, through Abraham, through his offspring, me, that the whole world is going to be blessed. Not just will the whole world be blessed, but there will be a multitude of kings. There will be a multitude of nations that come from me. Guess what? We're married. If it comes through me, that means it's coming through you. And Rebecca, I assume, at that time, is like anybody at that point, and she's sitting there thinking, wow, God, the ruler of the whole universe, has promised that through me, my offspring, the whole world is going to be blessed. And so now I don't know how long it took Rebecca and Isaac to decide to start having a family, but... You know, they've got that promise behind them. God himself, who clearly has brought the two of them together. Can't mistake that in Genesis 24. God himself, who's clearly brought the two of them together, has promised, hey, you're going to have this huge family. How exciting is this? And so Rebecca and Isaac, I don't know, a couple years in or whatever, say, hey, let's, let's start fulfilling this wonderful promise that has taken place. And that's not the way it happens. It doesn't turn out that way. 
Verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. They were married when Isaac was 40. Now, if you were paying attention when I read it, you know that eventually God does answer their prayer, and sure enough, Rebecca gets pregnant, but that doesn't happen until Isaac is 60. 20 years of barrenness. The word for prayer here, there's a number of different words in the scriptures, Old Testament for prayer. Oftentimes, the word is simply, you know, you're asking God, much like what we do. This is one of those terms that this is, this is entreating, this is begging, this is pleading, this is wrestling, this is grabbing a hold of God in prayer and refusing to let go until he gets an answer. This is, this is a, 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 an emotional yearning from Isaac, and I guess is that it didn't just happen 19 years in. You know, 19 years in, suddenly Isaac says, oh, I know what I'll do after 19 years of failure. We'll p- try prayer. And he prayed once. That's not what's going on here. For months, for years, Isaac has been yearning and, and pleading with God, God, what the heck? You promised this marvelous family. You promised this, this not just that we'd have kids. That's great. We look for that. But the fact that the whole world would be blessed, that the Savior would come And we can't even get pregnant once. We can't have a child. What possibly, it's not the way it's supposed to be after the whole lead up. God bringing the two of them together so clearly, everything working so perfectly. You know, there's an end result that's supposed to happen here. You're supposed to say, aha, you know, one year in, two years in, the babies start coming and everything is great. And it doesn't happen. And there's a chance that you read this text and you think of Rebecca and you just say, she's just got to learn that lesson. Life is hard. And it doesn't turn out the way it's supposed to. Coming in today, I got here about five, ten minutes after nine. So I had about 20 minutes before the service started. I talked to about six people and three of them all mentioned things where you can sit there and say, it's, it's not supposed to be like that. And, it's, and you just get, it's easy to get fatalistic. That's my response, by the way. My response is a little bit, well, God's in charge. I guess this is just the way it is. It's easy to get fatalistic. Or it'd be easy to get depressed. How many people have, have life beat down and they just get depressed. Or they get angry. Because it's not fair. God promised something here. We've been faithful. And we can't even have a single child. And we've been promised a multitude. And you just get angry. And I bet that's not the lesson that God wants Rebecca to learn. And then take a look in verse 22. Verse 22, right afterward, God answers her prayer eventually. So uh, 19 years in, 20 years in, finally Rebecca gets pregnant. So she, is, she conceives, and in verse 22, the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, 
Why is this happening to me? Uh, the, the children struggled within her. So she finally, finally gets pregnant after all these years of yearning. And you can see the yearning. You can tell the yearning. And finally, something they've been begging for all this time happens. And the children are struggling within her. Okay, while they're in the womb here, the word struggled there is, is smashed. It's the word that you use. It's the word that scriptures use. Uh, um, and I looked this up. There's amazing how many times skulls get crushed in the Old Testament. It just happens, you know, every other page, it seemed like. You know, and that's the word choice that is being used here. The children crush each other inside her womb. I've never been pregnant. I look it a little bit. I've never been pregnant, but I understand that, that you know, a woman can feel a lot of those kind of things happening in here. These children in her womb are struggling, are smashing each other. It, it's not the way it's supposed to be after 20 years of yearning, 20 years of desire, and then here you have this thing. And you can tell that she's confused because she then, Rebecca says, wait, uh, she says, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? And that reads weird in the English because it's weird in the Hebrew. It's basically a... Uh, a bunch, it, it's like three sort of sentences that are kind of crammed together in the Hebrew that don't really feed into a single sentence. Why? Because it's capturing her emotional trauma here. Here's a woman that has yearned for so long for something. Again, something that God himself has promised and set up. And when it finally comes, instead of the joy that you expect, there's this not just hardship. This sounds like disaster for this poor woman. And it'd be easy to, to, what's the message here? It'd be easy just to be discouraged. It'd be easy to sit there and think, you know, we pray so hard for this. It'd be easy to get resigned. Oh, well, I guess this is what it means to be a Christian in this world. Terrible things happen, and you just got to live with it. But I don't think... That's probably the lesson that God wants Rebecca to learn here in this instance. She goes to the Lord in verse 23. In verse 23, we are told then that she goes and God responds to her, answers her inquiry, says, you know, she says, Lord, help, what is this? And God responds by saying, look, you've got two people in your womb, and they're warring against each other, and they're going to be nations that are divided and in the nations that are divided, notice this, that the older will serve the younger. Now, I've got two kids. I don't want them to war. I don't like it when they, go, when they disagree and when they fuss. I fuss with my brother all the time and stuff like that. But there wasn't warfare. There's not something where you sit there and think, oh my gosh, the whole world is divided about this. And the woman sits there and says, holy cow, this is what you've given me? After 20 years of yearning to fulfill the promise that you gave, I am stuck with, with my womb being torn apart with the expectation, with the hope that eventually these two are going to go to war against each other. And not just that, but that the older will serve the younger. Now, this we have to just, you just got to take this on faith on this issue because we don't have that kind of mentality that the oldest son would carry more weight than the younger children and stuff like that. That's not part of our culture, but it absolutely was part of their culture. And so once again, 
The oldest is the one who's supposed to dominate. And here, Rebecca's being told, well, that's not going to be the case. And, you, and, and she's just like, this is not the way it's supposed to work. It's not supposed to work this way. And it'd be easy to get discouraged. It'd be easy to sit there and say, well, then why am I trying so hard to be faithful if this is what it ends up looking like all the time? But I don't think that's the message, that's the lesson that Rebecca is intended to learn. I don't think that's the lesson that we are supposed to learn through this passage. I think we are supposed to learn something totally different, which is why we don't study Rebecca as a psychological experiment. We don't study the story of Rebecca to try to have some type of a wonderful, cute little narrative or storyline. We study Rebecca, we study Jacob, because it fits within the overall context of what? Redemptive history. Say redemptive history. Redemptive history. What do I mean by redemptive history? Redemptive history comes to its culmination, to its climax in Jesus Christ. This passage is supposed to be giving us insight into Jesus Christ. And what do we know about the redemption that is ours in Jesus Christ? That by any measure whatsoever, you look at it and you say, it's not supposed to work like that. The sovereign Lord of the universe is not supposed to hang on a cross. The blessings that come into your life is not supposed to come at the cost of someone's blood. The way to victory isn't supposed to be that you give and die. But that's topsy-turvy, upside-down, ironic picture of the gospel is exactly what the scriptures portray over and over and over again the message of the scripture is it's not what you expect god is doing something entirely totally different and so what are we as believers supposed to do open my eyes, O oh Lord, that I might see your redemption. During one of the many, many, many wars between Syria and Israel, the nation of Israel and the nation of Syria, captured in, in, kings, uh, in, in the book of Kings here. So, uh, let's see. Uh, must be almost a thousand years after the events in which we're looking at now in this story, and say about 800 years before the coming of Jesus Christ, Israel and, and uh uh, Israel and Syria are at war with each other. And Israel is employing its secret weapon, Elisha. Elisha is a prophet. And Elisha keeps hearing from God what Syria is doing. So Syria tries to set a trap for the king of Israel. And God says to Elisha, hey, they're setting a trap for the king of Israel. And so then, uh, then Elijah goes and tells the king of Israel, and the Israel king turns the trap upside down, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so Israel keeps winning these wars, and Syria can't get on top of it, and they finally say, you know what, who keeps betraying us? Oh, it's that, it's that Elijah guy, that prophet. Let's set a trap for him. And so they set a trap, and they trap Elijah. They capture, they, they, they surround him. They, they have him all contained and everything. Aha, everything is over. And Elijah's servant is freaking out. Ah, there's all this enemy around there. And God says to Elijah, says, Elijah says to God, open the servant's eyes. And the servant's eyes are opened. 
to see all around the presence of God. God's servants, God's angels, all over everything. So there's no possibility of the man of God being injured. There's no possibility that God's purposes will not be fulfilled. Open the eyes. Now, Elijah saw it without seeing it because he knew the redemptive work of God. What are we supposed to do with a passage like this where every step seems to be upside down? Nothing is working the way that it's supposed to work. We're supposed to see in here, and the more we immerse ourselves in the gospel message, the clearer we will see it when we come into conflict within our own lives. So what do you do when everything's upside down? What do you do when, when nothing is working out the way that it should, where your family is a disaster, where your work situation is completely upended, where your emotions are terrible, where physically you are distraught. What, what do we do in those situations? As believers, we don't become fatalistic. Well, that's just the way the world is. We don't become discouraged. We don't become depressed. We say, God, open my eyes so that I can see the redemption that is here because it seems so upside down to me. It seems so wrong. But open my eyes so I might see. This, of course, is exactly the only way to look at what happens when the two twins are born. So you've got Esau and you've got Jacob that are born. And by our mindset, we're sitting there thinking, okay, God has made this promise that through Abraham, therefore through Isaac, will come the redemption of this world. So one of the two of these guys, so we got two of them, one of the two of these guys are going to carry the mantle of bringing the Savior into the world. You know, he's kind of got that super glow around him. He's got the glow around him because he's the chosen one. You know, he's a chosen child or something like that. So we're looking for it across the board. And so then you say, okay, who could it be? And we think, well, maybe it's Esau. So let's take a look at Esau. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Let me have some of that red stew for I am exhausted. I am about to die. What right is my birthright to me? So Esau, the firstborn, is the one who we would expect to be this person that would be carrying the mantle, that would be the one with the glow that, hey, he's going to be the one who, that carries. Esau, surely not this one, Lord. He's a mess. Esau, ruled by his appetites. Now, you hear what happens, by the way? He says, I'm about to die. Well, okay, this, is, this guy is, is impulsive. He's reckless. He learns. Now, I'm, I'm not just drawing a lot out of the story we've read. We're going to be looking at Esau on and off for the next six months together. And one of the things what you're going to see over and over again is Esau, in one sense, he's a man's man. He's the guy that's out in the field. He's shooting, uh, shooting the, 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 the deer, whatever, bringing home the bacon. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's, he's the guy that's really got things going. On the other level, he is immature at every stage. At every stage, he's doing something, and you're just like, come on, honestly. And so what does the scripture say then? He despised his birthright. Now, the birthright thing, that's hard for us to appreciate again, but basically, 
Yes, the birthright, he'd have a double portion of all of God's blessings. Okay, that'd be nice. He'd also be the leader of the family. That would be nice. But specifically, within the context of the promises of God, it'd be through Esau that the Savior would come into this world. And yet, Esau sells all of that for some red stew because he's... Why? It's not, I think, because he didn't know of the promises of God. My guess is that's not the case at all. He's been raised in a family with Isaac. Isaac has looked at these two kids and said, hey, through you guys, the Savior will come. And Esau, ruled by his stomach, can't put up with that. He won't deal with waiting. Delayed gratification to be part of the holy line of Christ is nothing next to his stomach. And I'm telling you, that marks my life. And that marks the life of so many people I do ministry with all the time. They can recite the promises of God. They know them to be true. But when faced with, I want it now, I need it now, it has to look my way, all that goes out the window. So it makes sense to us that the older, Esau, would serve the younger. That the younger is the one that is marked by God. Okay, so we got the younger child that is marked by God, and so let's take a look at Jacob. Jacob, then, is the one whom the glow falls upon and who everything is wonderful. And so Jacob says here, he's got this guy, Esau, where he wants him. He needs to, to eat, and Jacob's got the food. In verse 31, Jacob says, sell me your birthright right now. Esau says, I'm about to die. Give me some food. And Jacob says, swear to me, holding the food off to the side. Come on, swear to me. Come on, give it to me. And you sit there and you think, now this is going to be a constant theme that you are going to hear literally for the next six months from Doug and from me every time you come here and you hear us talk about Jacob. Jacob is one of the most frustrating individuals in the scripture because he's the hero and he is a bum. He is a bum from beginning to end. You try hard. Now, oh, that's not quite true. Towards the end, he straightens out a little bit. He's not terrible at the end. But until you get there, Jacob is just a bum. And the mentality that we have in our minds, again, the way it's supposed to be, this is God's chosen person, therefore he's going to do everything right. And, then, and so, okay, let's try to model our life after Jacob. Don't model your life after Jacob. He's, he is worse than Esau. These guys, he, there's nothing uh, admirable about him. And get that locked into your head as we go forward in studying Jacob. Because the temptation of saying, well, Jacob did it this way, therefore we should do it this way. That kind of mentality is going to run in your mind way too often. You've got to fight against that and realize that the scripture keeps holding this guy up. Not because he's some moral exemplary. Because he's not. Morally, he's just not what we want. He's a bum. Scheming, a trickster. Now, unlike Esau, Esau, doesn't, Esau knows the promises of God, but he doesn't trust them. I'm not going to build my life around that. Jacob, on the other hand, 
Jacob knows the promises of God. Not only does he know them, but he says, by golly, if God's got some goods out there, I'm getting in line as often as I can. I am pushing my way in. I'm going to make sure that it's, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that I grab for myself the promises of God. That's not how you get the promises of God. We get the promises of God, not by going out and grabbing and doing everything, but by turning to the Lord with our open hands and receiving the blessings that he pours out upon us. And that's exactly the message of these two bum kids. They're in the line of our Lord. It is through them that God is bringing salvation into the whole world. And the only way you can see that is by grace. It is not because either one of these two guys are worth it. It is not because they demonstrate any quality that is worth grabbing a hold of. It is not because we can live like them and experience the blessings. It is precisely because they are such complete failures at what God is calling them to be, that we see the redemptive history, the work of grace that comes about in Jesus Christ. It is only when we realize that these two guys, they don't set up humanity as good versus bad. They show us humanity as broken and broken, sinful, and worse. That's what we are. And that's why we see this story so beautifully before us. Because when we're looking at the story of Jacob, when we're looking at the story of the scriptures, we're looking at my story. We're looking at my story. We're looking at your story. Because we're looking at the story of God's gracious redemption. Where it is not deserved you've got terrible things happening in your life it would be so easy just to go oh well that's just terrible don't do it god has provided you insight into what's happening in your life he is showing you that this is the path of redemption this is how god's grace is going to shine most clearly into your life most of us who have gone through t difficult times know that. When we get around the other side, we can look back and we can say, maybe that's not the way it's supposed to be. But thank you, Lord, that that's exactly the way you made it to be. Because it leads us to Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, in your great grace, you have once again given us a witness, a testimony to your salvation in Jesus Christ, this picture of the work of the Lord. Jesus, we need you more and more. We need you to demonstrate your love to us each and every day. Help us to see, open our eyes, that the things around us would be clear of your redemptive work. We know that's the case, Lord. You've made it clear that that's the case. And we need to see it that way. Help us, Lord, to have that kind of faith that we can demonstrate in all that we do. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.